Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we are uh, we're jumping back in. We're back, like I said we would be, two weeks later. <laughs> Backstage, even. Call it a, call it a, don't call it a comeback. We, we did, in fact, leave for a we little bit. We did, in bit. fact, leave, so you, we, you should call you it should, a comeback. You should call it a comeback, but it is a comeback. Uh, <laughs> today, we're going to be getting into... The second part of a series that we started a few months ago, um, the the episode before last, Dylan kind of walked us through like his sort of history of games and, and the games that were impactful on the sort of taste that he developed for video games and, and how that kind of led to where he's at now and the perspective that he tends to bring to and the show. And it was very unfair that you didn't have anything to say about yourself. So yeah, now so we're doing a penalty. <laughs> now I will undo, un, uh, undergo the horrifying ordeal of being known and <laughs> expose all of my trash taste. So I hope that'll be fun, fun for y'all. Not going to lie, Dylan, I went back and listened to bits and pieces of your episode as I was, I was prepping for this. Okay. Because one of the things that I thought was really kind of fascinating is that we found sort of a through line through the mm-hmm. games that you talked about. And you, you talked about like your relationship with games kind of leading you down a path of being more and more interested in sort of the fictional world that the game creates and Mm -hmm. the way that the game allows you to interact with that physical with that fictional world as a means of for lack of a better word immersion i'm I'm paraphrasing the crap out of you right Right. now but i yeah i mean it's a it's a good recap for yeah and i i thought it was it was kind of fascinating that you had this this through line emerged in the games that you chose to talk about. And so I was like, I want to, I want to try and bring something similar. And I, I, boy, howdy, <laughs> it's hard to, to <laughs> take that, to like fucking pull, you know, to pull the camera back out of the snow globe and take the like full picture view of something like this. Well, well, Chris, um, if it, if it helps or if it makes you feel better, this is something that I've been kind of fixated on for a while now. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I feel like I had a moment of like, why am I think like why am I fixated on this game, this game, that game, and and like you know what is the commonality that like all these games have? Um, yeah. So I I I kind of I've been kind of fixated on that. That that was like my pandemic uh, soul search <laughs> thing. Gotcha. So. As as we're all sitting indoors, unable to do anything, you're just dissociating in your mind palace of video games. Listen, I hate to tell you this, buddy, but I've been dissociating in my mind palace of video games since middle school. That's, hey, very legitimate. We both run a gaming podcast, I think. <laughs> we, are, we are the same, you and I. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I was having a hard time kind of piecing this together, and so what I ended up doing was like, 
I have this little note document open in front of me right now that's just like I kind of broke down the kinds of games I was playing at different points in my life and threw a bunch of like examples of of games that stand out in my memory in there. And then at the bottom of that list is a list of like the games I've found in the last, you know, one to four years that have really like grabbed me and made okay. and stuck with me. And then I kind of reverse engineered it to find the games that I thought that I could find that line of like, oh, this thing that I love now, that's what I was seeing way back then. And so hopefully that will come through in the games that I choose to talk about, but who the fuck knows? Yeah, let's, let's, I'll stop rambling about my introduction and start rambling about the, 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 the subject of my book report today is <laughs> video games. Are they good? I'm not sure. Uh, but I've played a lot of them. I'll tell um, you one thing. We're here now to talk about them. Yeah, so the earliest sort of group of games that I rem really remember getting into uh, are all games that are older than I am because mm -hmm. I naturally I had a lot of a lot of the games I had when I was really young in particular were hand me downs. Uh, the first two game consoles I had were uh, an NES and an N64 that. I got as sort of a hand-me-down from my my older brother. So that was sort of that and like early PC games that my dad owned were like the bedrock of of me getting into this hobby. And they're all like two to ten years older than me. Um <laughs> see, you're better than me. I I got into those games for cred. That's not <laughs> that's clout. not necessarily true. But <laughs> But yeah, so a lot of these games were like, you know, I had Ocarina of Time, I had Mario Kart 64, uh, I had like the original Super Mario Bros, Super Mario Bros 3, Duck Hunt, uh, Paperboy, I had the fucking impossible first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game on the, on the N64 that was oh, yeah. garbage, terrible game. <laughs> Uh, at least as I remember it, I might like it more if I tried to go back to it now, but who the fuck knows? Well, listen, um, Angry Video Game Nerd had an episode on it, so therefore it must be immortalized as a <laughs> shitty game. <laughs> but the the games in this era that I, like, realized really kind of impacted me uh, were a couple of MS-DOS games for early PCs. Uh, Zork and Prince of Persia 1989. Print such such refined taste, by the way. <laughs> See, you say that I was like four. I was like four to six, and they were the games that I had. And like Prince of Persia, I I'm almost certain we've talked about this game before on the on the show. Like I would I would like to think so, right? I yeah, feel like it was like, pretty instrumental for both of us. Yeah, but as a recap, it is a very early. It's, it's like probably one of the first like quote unquote realistic platformer games. Mm -hmm. Uh the the guy who made it jordan mechner like the animation holds up shockingly well because it was all rotoscoped he he yep. got his brother to like run and jump and climb and drop from ledges and filmed all of it uh in profile and then animated over that film to rotoscope the animation of uh the prince and the other characters uh but the the premise of the game is you are a it's it's very like thousand thousand and one nights disney's aladdin kind of like you are a a beggar who falls in love with the princess of persia and you are thrown in the dungeon by the scheming vizier and you have one hour of actual real world time to make your way up through i think 10 levels 
to get to the top and beat the vizier. I did not do that as a child. I didn't do that no. until way later. In fact, uh, I still have not done that with the original version of Prince of Persia. Yeah, I've only done it with the it remake. It is not easy. Uh, <laughs> the the jump timing and momentum takes a lot of time to like get the muscle memory for. Once you get it, it like it still to this day feels really good. Mm -hmm. It feels sluggish if you don't know what you're expecting. Like shockingly sluggish. But once right. you get the feel for it, like the satisfaction of pulling off some of the more complicated platforming challenges that it throws at you later in the game uh, is really, really great. It, it feels great. If you are old also enough has... to have played... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's all I was going to say was, if you are old enough to have played Tomb Raider on the PS1, uh, that is basically a 3D version of how Prince of Persia, the original, controls. I've never played that one. I, I never had a PlayStation 1 growing up. There's there's like a there's a very distinct kind of rigidity to it mm -hmm. um, that is also uh, in Prince of Persia, where it's like you have to think ab about the space in terms of like how Laura handles or yeah, Lara. Yeah, like it, that always <laughs> fucks me up. Her name's Lara Croft. <laughs> One of the things about Prince of Persia that I think is so cool is that it uses its mechanics to tell its story in a really interesting way. Like, the story is pretty bare bones. There's not a lot of story beyond get to the top of the tower to defeat the vizier. But, like, as you do that, you're, you're doing all this platforming, and there's also sword fights where you'll, you'll come across guards. And the, the sword fighting mechanic, like, as simple as it is, is still maybe one of the most satisfying combat systems in a game. I'm in a huge like, fan of it. Certainly in a game of that era. And I mean, I would I, put I'll, it up. I'll say this, Chris. I'll say yeah. this. As someone who loved watching, particularly the the fencing scene in the Princess Bride, the mm -hmm. just like sword fights of all forms, shapes, and sizes. Um, and I feel like I'm interrupting you a lot for what's no, supposed don't to be please. I I would much rather you interrupt me than me just ramble and you go mm hmm because that that doesn't sound fun for the audience. <laughs> Understood. Uh, <laughs> I think it it really that just the the simple idea of strike versus parry yep um because that's all it is, is you 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 hit yeah. up and you will parry incoming strikes and you hit forward and you will attack yes that that simplicity still like really nails what i find so exciting about like watching a fencing scene in say like the princess bride or um you know even uh to use a a, a funnier more out there example uh muppet treasure island yeah you know? <laughs> uh just you, yeah. you the, the, the clickety clacks of fencing foils hitting each other translates surprisingly well to Prince of Persia's combat. Yeah, and, and especially as the game goes on, you will have to like parry and repost and parry and repost for like extended back and forths to be able to land a hit. And you it's, also have the danger of getting backed into the corner. Yep, because it because as you parry, it pushes you back a little bit. And in later sections, you can be getting pushed back towards traps, or you can try and push your opponent back into traps. It's like or you can switch places. Yeah, you can God, bait the, them the, and, the, the, uh, the Prince of Persia. It is a shockingly engaging system for being as simple as it is. Um, but one of the moments that really sticks with me in this game is there's a point about midway through where in order to advance you come across this mirror that's blocking your path and to yes. get through you have to jump through it jumping through it reduces your health to one it leaves you on the verge of death and it also spawns a like dark reflection of yourself that then like proceeds to take the piss and fuck with you for several <laughs> levels and like 
leads to you falling back deeper into the dungeon at one point, and like it's just it drinks a potion that you need, just fucks with you outright. And this comes to a head when you you approach it and it pulls out its sword and you have to fight it. But it's you. It's a reflection of you. And when you hit it, you take damage. And you can, you can end up banging your head against this trying to figure it out until you realize that what you have to do is put your sword away and, like, run into it and accept it as part of you. Very, very persona. Very Shin Megami Tensei. <laughs> Says but the like, man who just started Persona for I, yes, last but like, month. Uh, that's why it's in my head, I think. I know, I know. I'm just teasing you. But like <laughs> the the degree to which they're able to communicate something that it's not that deep, but like something surprisingly interesting and like through very minimal mechanics, I think has Pers- always stuck with me. It's really cool. I will cool. say. Um, so for listeners who don't know, there was like a viral t- uh, tweet that was like, Post for games that you think are masterpieces, not necessarily your favorite games, mm-hmm. uh, but just games that you think are culturally or artistically significant. And Prince yeah. of Persia was one of the games I picked precisely for the uh, fencing mechanics, the Dark Prince uh, mirror puzzle, and just like little things like that. That game is so incredible. <laughs> it's so good. Um, um, and then also I... Like I, I'm, I'm monopolizing this. No, you, uh, no this please game. go. Um, but one of the coolest things about Prince of Persia is that in an era where games were all about limiting you by how, like, you know, you have like five lives to beat the level, and if you score this many points, you gain another life. I find it really cool that Prince of Persia was like, "We're gonna give you unlimited continues, but you have an hour." It's so cool, and it, it leads to like. It it almost lends itself to a a roguelike sort of like mastery through repetition. Like roguelike's not the right rule word, but like I would say arcade more than roguelike. Yeah, but yeah, it it gives you that sort of mastery through repetition that you get if you spend a long time like drilling through like beat 'em up levels. Uh, yeah, where like the first time you do it, it might take you know the first time you you boot up Prince of Persia you might take like 20 minutes to get through the first couple of levels, but on your 10th time, you will be done with those in like two or three minutes. Yeah. Because you know where to go. You know how to control efficiently. You know how to like almost Sonic the Hedgehog, like continue your momentum as much as possible. Like it, I can't spend this long on every game, but man, Prince of like we could, if we haven't done a whole episode on this game, we could even with all the stuff we've talked about already. But the other game from this era that I, I wanted to bring up very briefly was Zork. Uh, Zork is a text-based adventure game. It's all text. You play it in the fucking like MS-DOS prompt box. And the way that it begins, it drops you. It just describes where you are. Almost, it's almost like playing a one-on-one like D&D game with your computer. Where like it'll be like, you are in a clearing. There is a cabin to the north and woods in all other directions. You have XYZ in your pocket, and you type in things like go north, or use key on door, or light torch, or climb down ladder. And you have to explore this whole like vast kind of world and make your way through. And I wanted to bring it up mostly because there is a moment in it that I still think about to this day where it puts you in a labyrinth. You have to solve a maze that you cannot see by typing in directions. <laughs> and you better believe I busted out the fucking graph paper. 
Good. As it's, you should. And like a handful of games since then have made me do that. And that is like, I do not get any more joy playing games than when I come to a puzzle and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have to take notes. <laughs> like that just tickles me pink. And I think that Zork is to blame for that. Like I, I, I was messaging Dylan about this as we were both playing through Tunic. Uh, and there was a point where I was like, I just mentioned, I'm like, I have a pad of paper and I'm so happy. <laughs> it's so, it's such a great feeling. Jumping forward a little bit through time, I had the N64, I had the NES, and then eventually we got a new enough computer that suddenly the world of 3D gaming opened up to me in the early 2000s. And the big one there uh, that really sunk, like, sunk its teeth into me once again was, was first off, Thief of the Dark Project, which I've talked about before on the show. I'll talk about it again later, I'm sure. It absolutely rules. It was my first taste of, like, immersive sim-style games, which I think rule. <laughs> They're so fucking cool. But Thief also, I think the thing that really got me about it is that it, it's a game that forces you to really think. Stealth games a lot of the time play out like puzzle games with more pressure on them in a, in a real way, where you have to yeah, be very... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You have to be very methodical, you have to be very observant, but then when you decide on what you're going to do, you have to fucking do it, and there is the chance that it can go catastrophically wrong. Uh, because in Thief, if you get spotted and guards pull out their swords, like, you can try to fight them. It's not going to go well because the sword fighting mechanic is ass, because that's not what the game's about. And the way that it coupled that, like, needing to be really observant, needing to be very methodical, with its way of handling stealth, where, like, you have a little indicator that shows you how in the light you are, uh, but that's kind of it. And otherwise, you have to actually pay attention to how loud your footfalls are to know whether you're going to be audible. You have to pay real close attention to, like, what the lighting sources are. You can use, like, different tools to make distractions. It's sometimes frustrating. There's a lot of quality of life things that have been added to more modern stealth games that are utterly absent in Thief. But I think that's part of why I like it so much and why I still find myself going back to it. Like, there's something about the fact that you get no indication other than someone going, Oh, what the fuck is that? Uh, <laughs> as to whether or not you've been spotted. Makes yeah, I it, think in that same... Oh, sorry. Yeah, No, sorry. Ahead. It just makes it really tense in a way that, like, having a little... Like, I love the Dishonored games. Mm -hmm. But having a little indicator that's filling up at the side of the screen that lets you know, like, oh, God, you need to hide now or someone's going to spot you takes away a little bit of the stress. It adds a different mm -hmm. kind of stress, but it, it makes the experience overall like, you know, if you don't see that, then you're fine. Right. In Thief, you never know if you're fine. I was going to say in that same vein, um, I really so I've, I've always been a fan of the Metal Gear Solid games, but um, Metal Gear Solid 2 in particular, I think I developed a completely new appreciation for it when I played through the game with the radar turned completely off. Oh, hell yeah. Because at that point, it's just like learning the level geometry, trying to find safe vantage points to monitor guard route, patrol routes, <laughs> seeing which guard is the one that uh, calls in to uh, the mother base so that they get routine updates and knowing to avoid knocking those guys. Just... That's that rad. entire layer of um, 
information gathering in there just (laughs) feeling exposed is uh quite good and i i can definitely see this this being a step two of like so it, it sounds like step one for you was like prince of persia and just how level design and puzzle solutions can can create a story or a logical progression of uh plot and now with uh thief it's it the idea of tension and stakes is really coming into play yeah absolutely and the other the other style of game that i really got into around this era was real-time strategy games Mm -hmm. which are are not a seer of a genre that i'm like that big into anymore with a couple of notable exceptions that I'll I'll touch on at the end. Okay. But I I had a, a period of time where I was huge into like Age of Empires, Age of Mythology, uh the early Warcraft games. I never got into StarCraft. I just didn't own it. Um but mm-hmm. like that sort of top-down resource management real-time strategy really sunk its teeth into me for a while. And I think at the time what it was was partially like I was a very nerdy kid in the age of mythology and age of history or age of empires series, just like were full of cool history and mythology things for me to learn. And I thought that was fun, but I think mechanically I was drawn to them for a lot of the same things that I liked about thief in terms of like, it requires the same kind of attention to detail and like focus and, and strategizing. But I think I kind of fell off of them a little more because they just, there's kind of there's more of a formula to those than a lot of other games and you kind of fall into like doing the same thing every time which lost its luster after a little while for me. I I don't have a huge like through line for that except I'll I'll loop it in at the end when I talk about one or two games uh in that vein that fucking rule from more recently and why I think I like them more. Jumping forward from the Oh boy, a computer with a Pentium processor era in my childhood. Uh, the first sort of quote-unquote current generation console that I had was a, a GameCube that I bought for myself some two or three years after it uh, came out. And I've talked a lot about games on the GameCube era that I love. We've we've talked extensively about Metroid Prime and Paper Mario and the Thousand-Year Door, uh, Sands of Time. The game that I kind of want to want to focus on in this era as this was again sort of in the same time frame as my my period of really liking real-time strategy games but I look back on this game way more fondly even though it's fairly similar uh fucking Pikmin Oh yeah Pikmin rules <laughs> So Pikmin uh if you were not aware the premise is that you are uh a spaceman named Olimar who crash lands on an alien planet Spoilers the planet is Earth or at least a version of Earth, and your your ship is damaged, you have 30 days of life support to find the pieces of your ship that you need to repair it to get back to your home world. And to help you do this, you befriend this race of like tiny plant people called Pikmin that you can pluck out of the ground, and they follow you around and fight enemies for you and carry things back to their like pods to make more Pikmin or to your ship when you find your ship parts. And I cannot wait for the next Pikmin game that they finally announced is coming out on Switch. I love, I haven't, I never played Pikmin 3. I only played a little bit of Pikmin 2, but like the series as a whole has so much, like, I have so much love for it because it's so weird. It's kind of real-time strategy-y in that your, your job is to like command these little Pikmin followers to do your bidding, except you have to, like, you are controlling Olimar directly. You're walking around the map as this little spaceman, 
and you use your whistle to be like, you Pikmin, follow me, and then you can throw them uh, at things that you want them to gather, and, and once there are enough of them around it, they'll pick them up like a bunch of ants and carry them back to the ship, or you can throw them at walls and they'll start bashing the walls down. And so what the, the game turns into as it goes on and you uncover more of the map and you have different kinds of Pikmin that can traverse different kinds of obstacles and you're on this time crunch to find all the pieces of your ships is it becomes this like time and resource management game where you'll start a day. I don't remember how long the days are in Pikmin. Like I want to say 10 minutes or so maybe. I'm getting to know this is a trend with you. <laughs> Time limits, baby. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Majora's Mask next. <laughs> oh my god. That see, that's not one that's on this list because I didn't play that until like way later. I never no, I had know. Majora's Mask as a kid. But yeah, so like you'll start a day and it's like, okay, I'm back in this level. I know that like there's something past this wall that I haven't broken down yet. So I'm gonna first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a group of Pikmin and have them start tearing down the wall. Then I'm gonna take another group of Pikmin and go off in this direction and try and fight my way through the enemies, because I think there's, like, some more Pikmin pods over there that I can use to make more Pikmin, but you can only have, like, a finite number of them in the field with you, so if you're splitting up to, to try and multitask, that lowers uh, how quickly any one task will get done, and it's, it is such an interesting game, and forces you into, like, a lot of, like, okay, how do I best use the time that I have and the resources at my disposal to try and like eke out, you know, can I get ahead of quota? Can I find like one extra ship part today so that I, I'm not right up against the wire. And in a way it feels almost, I should, I should clarify. It does not feel like a roguelike, but the, like I'm eking out whatever advantage I can to try and stay ahead of the like disaster is very much the same kind of interest curve that you get with a lot of roguelikes. You should, you where you're should like, really, I, you should really consider playing arcade games. You know, I, I do. <laughs> I, I should try, I should try picking up some, some of them, uh, them bullet hells and shoot them ups that you've been. Roguelikes are the <laughs> dark souls of it's a game you play over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. But yeah, no, I'm like arcade yeah, games no, are another sorry, great point of comparison. You. No, you, you, I deserve it always. <laughs> um, I think that Pikmin, like, again, it was tapping into what I didn't even realize this was a through line until you just pointed it out. But like this idea of time limits and like interesting sort of diegetic stakes really mm -hmm. fascinated me and continues to. The other game I wanted to bring up in this, and again, this is one we can touch on very briefly, but. Uh, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker yeah. is maybe, like, I don't think it's my favorite Zelda game, but it's certainly one of my most beloved Zelda games. It's, it's certainly one that I look back on often and fondly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not one that I feel a great pull to replay. If they yeah. released it on the Switch, I would absolutely buy it and I would absolutely play it, but, like... It's funny because I, I not booted it up, like... A year or two ago, and while you know the charm is still there in spades, um, it definitely, I guess, because now like I'm a gamer, um, <laughs> I think about <laughs> I think about games that differently than when I was a kid. But like, it's definitely uh doesn't the the design of the game doesn't pull me in the same way that Majora's Mask or even Ocarina of Time or A Link to the Past do. Yeah, yeah, and I think a big part of what I loved about it 
back in the day was like it really captured even more than Ocarina of Time, which did this very well. It was the first Zelda game in 3D, at least, that really captured that sense of like adventure. I would definitely like, agree with that. Yeah. Like go getting out into Hyrule Field and field in Ocarina of Time for the first time is rad. Like that yeah. is a really, really cool moment. But like getting out onto the ocean for the first time in Wind Waker is magical in a way that like even much more actually vast and impressive open world games or you know quote unquote open world in the way that Wind Waker was mm-hmm. have a hard time like replicating in my soul. I really don't think anything's surpassed that feeling of adventure that Wind Waker gave me until Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I was just going to say Breath of the Wild comes pretty dang close and might might do more, but like it's 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 telling how much that is a boat. Yeah. And it, it is telling the degree to which I can't say definitively that Breath of the Wild did that better for me. Oh, I can. I th- <laughs> no, <laughs> that's this fair. Isn't that's about fair. Like me, though. No, I'm. I'm just. I'm, I'm fucking around. You're good. <laughs> if you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Jumping forward another few years, I did finally end up getting a console during like the mainline lifespan of it. I ended up with a three, an Xbox 360 uh, late, in the 20, late in the 2000s. And this is where I was thinking about games I was playing in this era, like when I was in high school, and there is a a sharp split in my taste where on the one hand, on the Xbox, I was play, getting to play a lot more of like the AAA games that were current than I ever had before, like things like the Assassin's Creed series, Batman Arkham, uh, the Orange Box, Mass Effect, Dishonored, like all of these games that you know, previously, I if I was playing a game that was that big of a name, I was coming to it at least a few years behind the times just because I didn't have uh, right. current hardware. But at the same time, I was getting really into like more of the indie game kind of scene on PC uh, mm-hmm. because this was also right when like Humble as a company popped up. And this was before there was the Humble store. They only did the Humble bundles, which originally were just like, Here's like eight indie games, pay whatever you want for them, and the money goes to charity and the developer. And that was really cool. And so I got a whole bunch of them. And the game that sort of sticks in my mind from the Humble Bundles that I got in this era uh, is a game that I I really want to go back and replay. I haven't, I never beat it and I never, I haven't gone back to it in years, but it's a game called Machinarium, which is this delightful hand animated uh point and click adventure game i'm gonna have to look this one up look look it up right now the the aesthetic and the vibe is immaculate you play this little like steam-powered robot friend in this brass steampunky world and it's it's classic point and click adventure game stuff you're you're wandering around collecting items and handing them off to people and i had i played a few point and click adventure games as a kid and enjoyed them uh and i i ended up picking up uh, Grim Fandango around this time as well, which we've talked about before and and certainly is is impactful on me. But I think Machinarium was the game that really made me go like, 
oh wow, people are making really cool games with not a lot of money, and I should play more of those. Yeah, that's sick. And even like as I was, I was like trying to remember the name of this game as I was prepping for this. I was like, oh crap, what was that game? And I looked it up, and the the hit of nostalgia that I got immediately upon seeing the visuals was so huge. <laughs> um, I'm I'm almost getting like. Obviously, this isn't quite the same, but I'm getting like the tiniest Oddworld vibe from the uh, yeah it's, the tone. It's a little bit Oddworld. It's a little bit. It almost feels like the the style of the illustration feels like almost rolled uh, uh, road doll ish. Mm-hmm. Like there's 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 something to the vibe that is like it's clearly drawing on a lot of different sort of tonal inspirations, but it's the the sum of its parts is just delightful. I don't have a ton more to say on that. Like it's it is not a game that did anything mechanically that interesting, but it was like a watershed moment for me of like getting more into the indie game sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh and then that kind of excuse me, that kind of followed me into getting into college and then and then beyond where suddenly I didn't have a ton of time for playing games. When I was playing games, often it was like hanging out with you or our other friends and so I was I I got to play Metal Gear Solid for the first time on your uh, your PlayStation in your dorm room freshman year and get spotted by a surveillance camera during a cutscene. It's, it's a good memory. It wasn't during the cutscene. That, that's that's slanderous. You walked into it. Well, no. W- OK, maybe yes, my no, memory I, okay. is faulty. We, we, we've said this. We've, we, I think we've talked about this on the show we probably, before. But, you probably have. Uh, from my perspective as someone who has played this game multiple times... Here's what happened. You walked up to the surveillance camera, then the cutscene triggers where David Hayter goes, a surveillance camera? And then, um, because the perspective is like, the, the camera's in the foreground and Snake's in the background, your first instinct was to hold up to move Snake away. But when the camera went back to the default game camera, um, the camera is to the north, and so you walked into the camera's line <laughs> of sight. That's probably what happened. My memory is that I walked into the frame that triggered that cutscene. David Hayer said, a surveillance camera? And during the cutscene, because it's in-game, the camera was moving. And as such, when the cutscene ended, the camera's position had changed and now was looking at me. (laughs) But maybe (laughs) maybe I'm making that up. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's Johnsing. You know what? You know what? I'm... (laughs) I'm going to forget to do this, but maybe tonight, after we're done recording, maybe I'll get to that point in the game, because it's, like, in the first 15 minutes. And maybe I'll just, I'll I'll set the controller on the floor when I trigger that cutscene, and I'll see if, uh, if Snake is automatically within the cone of vision when that cutscene triggers. Yeah, it, it probably won't, uh, go my way in the lab, <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> okay. But... But yeah, like, so I was playing a lot of, I was getting to play games on other consoles that I hadn't had before, hanging out with friends uh, during college is, I did a lot of gaming on, like, my friend's PS4s, which was the current, which was the, uh, the current system at the time. But in my own time, I was getting more and more down that indie game rabbit hole with things like the Shovel Knight games, which fucking rule. I was, uh, a game called Invisible Ink, which I, mm-hmm. I feel like I might have talked about on the show before. I think, I, um, I think you have. Like, we've definitely talked like, about it off mic. Yeah, it is it is essentially like a an isometric tactics game, but it's also a stealth game and it 
absolutely rules. It is, it is, if you like things like Fire Emblem or even more so things like X, XCOM and also like stealth games, Invisible Ink is absolutely worth checking out. But the game that I really want to talk to about from this era is Papers, Please, which again, I'm almost certain we've talked about on the show before, so I will keep it brief. But Papers, Please is a game in which you play a border, like an, an immigration border post agent for a fictional dystopian nation. And your job is to check the documents of the people trying to get into the country. And it tells a story through that task. What you are doing never changes. The documents you have to review change. The, the requirements get more stringent. The, the amount of paperwork you have to juggle and the number of different things you have to cross-check uh, increase as the game goes on. But the fundamentals of what you're doing never change. And yet they manage to tell... Like, I'm not even not even looking at, like, big-picture narrative. There is one, but, like, the number of, like, little personal stories that they manage to tell just by virtue of the conversations people have with you while you're looking at their documents, the things that they hand over to you, the different people that you see in a given day. It manages to communicate so many little narratives so well through such a like minimal number of mechanics it's getting back to what i love about prince of persia it's this idea of like doing a lot with a little that i i found absolutely fascinating and yes guess what dylan there's time limits (laughs) in papers please incredible you have a, a limited number amount of time each day and you want to get as many people through as possible because you're paid by the number of successful uh, immigrations that you process. And at the end of the day, you have to allocate your funds to things like heat and food and medicine for you and your family. And your family can get sick if you don't make enough money to keep the heat on. And it's a game that people have been talked about in like this, you know, this vein of like art house games that kind of came out of the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. But it's really good. Like, if you are interested in games that have a lot to say, Papers, Please is really, really worth looking into. It is, it is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the last, like, real big touchstone I had that, like, felt impactful on my, my, my journey as a gamer. Um, <laughs> but I did kind of want to wrap up with, like, the games I was looking at now that I have got, that I have gotten into and, and have, stayed under my skin that I think all of these have led up to a couple of which I know we've talked about on the show before one that I know falls into that is a game called subsurface circular uh yes by the same guy who made Thomas was alone and it is a game in which you are a robot detective navigating dialogue trees on a train and I love it with my entire heart because similar to papers please it is a game all about little stories that fit together to make a big story and you have one way of interacting with that, and yet they manage to make so many little like things out of it. Tunic, obviously, I brought up earlier. Dylan and I have done a whole episode on it. It it fits so neatly into all of this stuff of like games, and I, I guess I should actually wrap up with like what I think the thesis of all of this is. <laughs> okay, I think if your sort of journey that you that you laid out in your episode was about getting more and more into how games sort of draw you into the worlds that they create and what they're able to do with that idea. 
I think what what kind of fueled me and the the paths that of that my interests have taken are about games that are trying to be more than the sum of their parts and that are trying to like kind of push what a mechanic can do in non-mechanical ways. So the way that the the sword fighting in Prince of Persia melds with this idea of the like ha- how you beat the dark prince. For me that is not a that's a pretty straight line to the diegetic game manual pieces in Tunic and the way that that informs how you have to make your way through the game mm-hmm. or the way that Papers Please's story through documents ties into subsurface circulars uh story through dialogue trees and also like if you take the Papers Please stories through documents and tie it to real-time strategy games you get a game that I don't know that I've talked about on the show before called Frostpunk. I don't think you have. Frostpunk is a quote-unquote real-time. You can pause time in the game, uh, but it is a city management game where you are trying to manage the last city on Earth following, like, a global ice age, and you have to, like, coordinate what all the people in the city are doing and what buildings are being built and what resources are being gathered but you're also having to pass different laws to determine how society is going to progress and deal with things. So one of the first ones that comes up is there is a one of the like renewing sort of countdowns is every X amount of time you get to open up the book of laws and sign a new law. But sometimes that will be prompted by the game itself. The game will be like, hey, some townspeople have a question and you will you'll click on that prompt and it'll be like, okay. We're all set up here, but we've got children with us. We need something to do with the children. And then you have to sign a law about what that's going to be. And it can either be, if you, if you decide you need all hands on deck, you can sign child labor laws and you can, you can put the kids to work. Oh, wait, I or, have heard about this game. We, we've yeah, never talked you about can, it, but I've heard about this game. <laughs> it's so good. Or you can sign a law that's like, no, kids aren't going to work. We will, we will establish daycares where the kids can stay. And those then have cascading choices off of them. If you sign the the kids have to work a law, then you can later sign a law that's like, okay, they're going to work, but we'll only put them in the, we'll make sure to sequester them only in like non-dangerous laws or jobs. Or you can sign a law that's like, nah, all the kids in the mines now. And if you take the other path, then later on you have an option between like, you can you can decide, all right, the kids are in daycares, but they can still help you can send them to either be apprentices to the engineers or apprentices to the doctors. And so all of these like sort of big picture, it's like a moral choice system almost, except they have like concrete trackable benefits and drawbacks as you are trying to like maintain this very precarious resource balance that you're doing. Cause the game is not easy. No. And you can fail very easily. And it, like, this is what I was talking about earlier when I was in the, the real-time strategy segment, is, like, this is where that interest led me, is, like, I, I booted this game up, and I was getting the little bit of, like, okay, yeah, this is a fun little puzzle that I got with the old Age of Empires games, but it was also, like, presenting me with choices and telling an interesting story and, like, giving me, again, those, like, diegetic stakes of you've got this real-time countdown and every couple of days the temperature fluctuates and if it gets too cold then when people are out in the field they'll get sick so you need to find different jobs for them to do so your your medical infrastructure doesn't get overwhelmed and like 
I love games that are into the fact that they are games and are willing to like use their the tools that that gives them to like push a story towards you or to push ideas or to like make you engage with them differently. And yeah, I think that's the end of my long spiel. <laughs> I think that about sums it up. Yeah. I rambled for a very long time. Well, I mean, hey, that's uh, I mean, it's it's your entire timeline, dude. We're we're almost thirty. That's thirty years of games we got to cover. Jesus Christ! Don't say things like that. <laughs> <sighs> no, you got yeah. rip the bandaid off. <laughs> God. Also, there's so many games on this list that I didn't talk about. Like fucking, everyone go play Kentucky Route Zero. Kentucky Route Zero rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone go play Hollow Knight. Everyone go play Absolver. I I definitely had moments. Uh, I think I texted you last. Uh, when we wrapped up my episode where I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I'm, I'm happy with what I chose to talk about and what I chose not to. I think that I, I, I got to my point without leaving too much off. Right. But like, it is, it's hard to like, like I said at the beginning, it's tough to pull the lens back far enough to like really introspect in this way about something as ephemeral as like what I am interested in and why. Right. Yeah, I, I guess the easiest way is like what sticks what A, what stuck with me, B, what hasn't stuck with me, but like led me to stuff that stuck with me. Like, you know, it it's Yeah. There's no yeah, and I, real consistency. Like, um sorry, I'm I'm like going into my own navel gaze right now, but that's not important. <laughs> uh what I did want to say though is that like yeah, I feel like you know, obviously uh, we have similar tastes. That's why we're doing a show together. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> there, there's an idea of um, conveying story because I, I feel like the modern trend, and this isn't to poo-poo, uh, you know, modern games or anything, but there, there's certainly, uh, a, especially last generation, there, there's a trend to kind of place stakes upon the the player. And, you know, have, like, this is a set-piece moment where we really ramp it up and, you know, we're going to have this segment here where you're walking and talking with a character to establish uh, a dynamic in stakes. Um, But it's, like, I think when players are allowed to become attached to what they want through the systems that have been provided for them, that creates a much stronger emotional connection. This isn't an example I used in uh, the last episode, uh, the episode I, I did for myself, but like one of the most striking moments for me in any video game was um, playing Shadow of the Colossus, a game that I'm going to be honest, oh God, the first yeah. time, the very first time I played that game, I was a Philistine and was just kind of trying to push through to the end. But uh, <laughs> uh, you you get to the final boss and your horse saves you as you are both falling off a bridge like your horse kind of tosses you from uh his back and i remember that hit me super hard just like not having access to that horse anymore and having to let it set in that like i think my horse just died (laughs) yeah i I feel like this is I I feel like I I heard this from somewhere else but there's you know there's the the adage in film uh-huh. and screenwriting of show don't tell. Right. You want to you know the audience is going to feel what you want them to feel more distinctly if you give them a scene where that it, where that thing is made clear than if you have a like don't have a character tell you how they feel about something show the moment that made them feel that way. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. 
And I think that games have a similar thing. And again, this is I'm I'm sure that I'm stealing this from someone somewhere, but I can't remember it, so I'm saying it now, and it's mine now. Take that. Uh, I think that what makes the games that I really like stand out, and a lot of the games on this list stand out for me, is that they make it do, don't show. Yes. Like, even the stories in Paper, Please, like, the way that that game presents its stories is not following show, don't tell. You're being told basically everything, but you're being told it in such a way that you need to do the work to put it together, yeah. and you only know to do that work because you're engaging with the mechanics directly it is, it is up to you to engage with those systems or to, to engage with that information being provided to you and to filter it accordingly yeah and and that's something that like i have mixed feelings on the way that like the dark souls games do their storytelling through like the it all being lore and it all being stuff that you have to piece together through like fragmentary conversations and flavor text on items but overall, I mean, I'm very for that because I mm-hmm. I like games that make you I like games that make you kind of work for it. And obviously, if if the amount of videos online going over Dark Souls story and Hollow Knight story and and Bloodborne story and like people have made careers out of decoding the way that these games tell their stories for an audience. Mm-hmm. Clearly this resonates with people. And I think that's rad. And I'll, even if, I'll like, say this, I'll, I'll say this about dark souls. Um, even if you choose to play dark souls and like, not really think about the lore, the lore is just something that like people are vaguely talking about as you are trying to get from point A to B to C to D. The game is still, the game's narrative is still super engaging and evocative even if you're kind of wandering not really knowing what the exact specificity of what happened in the past is absolutely yeah like you're still going through the process of you've been thrown in this weird confusing bizarre space and you are trying to put together what you need to do maybe not to get to the end but to to see whatever task you've been given through and I don't know. I think I think there's value in that. I I think there's um you don't always need to have like the full picture for the slice of the picture that you choose to engage with to still have meaning. Yeah. And I guess like the this now has me thinking about cuz we 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 brought up in a recent conversation uh I don't remember if this was on the podcast or if this was just something we were talking about but like the the cinemification of like AAA games in the vein mm-hmm. of like the Last of Us, God of War 2018, things like that. And I like God of War 2018. I think this was actually just a conversation we had in our group chat. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I believe it. But, like, I like God of War 2018. I appreciate that, like, it can feel a little preachy. I appreciate that it is not going to be everybody's cup of tea for that. Mm-hmm. But I think what I, what I liked about it when I first played it was I like it in the same way that I like a movie. Mm-hmm. I think that it like the the performances in it the 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 staging and you know really call it what it is cinematography of it the way that it presents its story is very very good but I didn't put it on this list because I when I think about it I think it's like it's a great story it's a great you know narrative well told it's not I don't think of it in the same vein as something like Papers Please where it is it is not doing what it does because it's a well because it's a game if that makes sense mm-hmm. and maybe now i'm getting navel gazy but like 
the strengths of the way that God of War tells its stories is this and and the last of us from what I have seen of it those they are using film language and film techniques to tell a story well not game mechanics and game techniques in the way that I find personally like holy crap really cool right and now I'm done rambling because I got off topic here in this home stretch. Let's wrap up, Dylan. Yeah, it might be time. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed hearing me wax poetic for a little bit. Uh, sound off on social media and let us know about the games that made you the gamer you are today. Dylan will tell you how to do that in a second. I don't know what that energy was. I hope you enjoyed listening to Backstage Gaming, though. Genuinely, uh, we love making this show for you, and we hope that you love it, too. And you can find us at back, uh, bsgpod.com if you want to know more about the show. You can also find our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, your podcatcher of choice. And if that podcatcher lets you leave ratings or reviews, we'd appreciate if you do that very thing. Uh, yeah. Hey, Dylan, what about social media? If you want to check us out on social media, you can hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is at BSG underscore cast. Also, huge. Uh, also, if you uh, want to talk to us, talk about us, like, you know, nice things, I hope, uh, you can use the hashtag BSGpod. Um, also, huge, huge thanks to our friend Brennan French for the key art he has provided our show. Um, if you dig that, you should check out more of his stuff at Brennan at brennan-french.squarespace.com that is b-r-e-n-n-e-n hyphen french.squarespace.com uh you can also find brennan on instagram.com slash brennan french arts and on his twitter at brennan underscore french thank you also to our friend bioquery for the use of our theme song dot sound radio volume one instrumentality you can find more of bioquery's music by going to soundcloud.com slash bioquery that's soundcloud.com slash b-i-o-q-u-e-r-y or by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. And thank you to a couple more people. Thank you to you if you are a patron at patreon.com slash bsgpod. It is thanks to you that we don't lose money making this show. It means the world to us. If you like the show and you want to support it in a very direct way, patreon.com slash bsgpod is a great way to do that. And thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It's, they are a great network full of podcasts about video games. If you like our show, you're sure to like some of theirs. Check them out on Twitter at hpvgpodnetwork. I think that'll do it for us for this week. We'll be back in two more weeks with another episode, probably a little less uh, just me ranting into the microphone for an hour, I hope. Talk to you later. See you guys. Bye.